0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features Laura Karstensen delivering an Aspen Lecture at the Aspen Ideas Festival Spotlight Health. Carsenson is a professor of psychology and public policy at Stanford University. She also founded the Stanford Center on Longevity. She writes and speaks widely on the topic of longer lifespans in the twenty first century. We are approaching a watershed moment in human history, a time when the elderly outnumbered children and living to one hundred is commonplace. Carsenson explores the major challenges associated with this dramatic and sudden increase in life expectancy. She says we must not lose sight that long life presents unprecedented opportunities. Here is Laura Carsonson.
1: Uh, What I want to do this morning is to really just talk a little bit about this remarkable increase in life expectancy and how remarkable it is. Uh, Also the challenges that it presents to individuals and uh, societies as we come to have populations that are aging. And I'll also tell you a little bit about the work that we're doing at the Stanford Center on longevity, where our mission is to change the culture of human aging. I'm going to make some assumptions about you, uh, your educational background, your affluence in the world, and so on. So I am assuming a couple factors. But given that, let me tell you that most of you are going to sail through your 80s into your 90s, and lots of folks in this room will live to be 100. Your children, your grandchildren? Well, a prominent demographer in Germany uh, recently estimated that the majority of children born since 2000, the majority in the developed world, will live to be 100 and beyond. Um, You know, you, you know this already, I'm sure, but you know, the centenarians of the 22nd century. They're here, they're living among us, they're playing on the playground, swinging on the tire swings, um, climbing on those play structures. And it is our job, in fact, I believe it is our duty, to build a world that supports them through ten and more decades of life. Now, people who are old today often remark that they arrived at old age by surprise. Uh, One of my favorite cartoons is a picture of two older women. They're sitting on a park bench, and one turns to the other and says, you know, I'm getting so old. My friends in heaven are going to think I didn't make it. (laughs) Um, You know, people who are elderly today have good reason to be surprised that they lived as long as they are living uh, because most of their peers didn't. Today, we have uh, no excuse. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, let, me, let me zoom out for a minute and put this aging thing in historical perspective. So throughout uh, most of human history, life was short, uh, very short. We don't know exactly what life expectancy was as our ancestors were evolving on the African savanna, but the ranges, the guesses range from 18 to 20. Now think about that. In humans, that is barely long enough to ensure survival of the species because you have to age old enough to be able to reproduce and then hang around long enough to make sure those offspring will grow old enough to be able to reproduce. So it was touch and go uh, for the species. And evolution did act on age in these early years. It acted in the way that evolution acts at a snail-like pace and over thousands of years, life gets a little bit longer, and a little bit longer, and a little bit longer. Now let me fast forward to the mid-1800s. Life expectancy in the United States had reached the mid-30s. By 1900, life expectancy in the U.S. was 47. And then by the end of that century, by the end of the 20th century, life expectancy had reached 78, 47 to 78 in a century. (laughs) Um, More years were added to average life expectancy in the 20th century than all years added across all prior millennia of human evolution combined. So, in a blink of an eye, we nearly double the length of the lives that we are living. And by the way, this change is not finished with us yet. Three months has been added to life expectancy at 65 every year for now decades. So, even at advanced ages, we're continuing to see life expectancy pushed out. And here's the story about aging societies. Across those very same years that life expectancy was getting longer, fertility rates, the number of births, fell by half. So in 1900, the average woman has 4.2 children. You like the decimal points And by the end of that century, it goes to 2.1. So it's reductions in the number of people born and an increase in the length of the lives that we're living that generates aging societies. We could have had longer lives without aging societies. But these two phenomena together have produced what we call aging societies. And and by the way, by definition, an aging society is a society where you have more people over 60. And under 15, a point we have reached now in the United States and uh, our European um, friends reached quite a while ago. Um, so today in the United States, 14% of the population is over 65. By 2030, 15 years, that number, that percentage will be 20 percent. 20% of the population over 65. And of course, and as I say, in Europe and Japan, other parts of Asia, this proportional change has been even greater. In Japan now, 23% of the population is over 65. And by 2050, the predictions are, are there's a range of predictions, but the percentages range in Japan from 36 to 41% of the population over 65. Um, now, these numbers are game changers for societies, uh, remarkable game changers. And that's the story of longer lives and, longer, and aging societies and how quickly they came about. Now, mind you, we have not, and I repeat, we have not found the fountain of youth. Uh, it is not that we haven't looked. We used to sail off in ships. (laughs) Now we turn to laboratories. But ever since we humans realized our own mortality, uh, we've been searching for ways to uh, uncap that cap on the length of life. Now, throughout my career, I can tell you that those people who were talking about life extension and living dramatically longer than we've ever lived before, those people, those scientists, were, I will say, on the academic scientific fringe. <laughs> but last year, you may have noticed the headline on uh, issue of Time Magazine that read, Can Google Solve Death? And in my neck of the woods, when Google gets on it, <laughs> a lot of people turn heads and go, whoa, you know what are they doing? And they hire CEO, uh, former CEO of Genentech, uh, Art Levinson, to run it, and they're looking for ways to actually extend Life. Hmm. Um, there are now a lot of serious scientists thinking that this may be possible, that there may be ways to slow the biology of aging so that people age more slowly, and that would result likely um, in longer lives. But that remains a promise. So that is currently a research area, to our knowledge, the lifespan the maximal length of life that humans can live has not changed much, if at all, over the years of human evolution. Now, so we're talking about two different things one is life expectancy, and one is lifespan. So, life expectancy is simply an arithmetic mean, the average length of life of any particular group, and it's generally computed at birth. So we say average length of life is 47, is 78. What's the typical average length of life in a group? A country, a group, you can compute it any way. Lifespan refers to the capacity of an organism to live for a particular amount of time. And we don't know what lifespan is in humans. We know what it is in Drosophila, fruit flies. We know what it is in earthworms. But to know what it is in humans would mean that we would have to uh, eliminate all diseases, uh, reduce accidental deaths, uh, eliminate environmental toxins, and so on. Then we get to see how long would humans live under perfect conditions. We don't know. So we don't know what that number is. We do know uh, that so far the reigning champ of longevity is a woman named Jean-Louis Colmat, French woman, who holds the title of the longest lived person ever. Uh, she died in 1997 at the ripe old age of 122. So we know lifespan has to be at least 122. Somebody's already made it. Um, I like to tell stories about her any time I talk to a group, if any one person in that group may be a little uneasy about getting old uh, because she was a wonderful character. Mm. There are all sorts of Kalma stories. Um, she played herself in the movie Vincent and Me, which was about Vincent van Gogh. She'd actually met him, so she played herself in the movie. <laughs> um, she made a rap album uh, when she was a hundred and 14, I believe it was. Uh, journalists, as you might imagine, would flock to go see her and talk to her. Um, and one journalist and um, asked her when she was 120, what sort of a future do you envision? <laughs> and Kalma stared at her for a minute. She said, a very short one. <laughs> but my favorite story, hands down, about Jean-Louis Coma is one about a property deal that she accepted at the ripe old age of 90. <laughs> you know this story. She, she owned a house in the French city of Arles where she had grown up. And she lived in the family house, and she had every intention of living out her life in this house. There was a young lawyer he's was 47 years old. He really wanted to buy this home. And uh, he would make her an offer, and she would say no. And he would come back a couple months later and he'd make her another offer. And she would say, no. And one day he arrives on her doorstep and he says, I have a proposition for you. He says, I will pay you $400 a month for the rest of your life. If you will deed the house to me on your death. So she thinks about it (laughs) and she says, okay. And over the next couple weeks, they draw up a contract have it signed, and then over the next 30 years, this fellow pays comma more than three times the value of her home. She outlived him by two years. <laughs> yeah, he died at 77. <laughs> But they had become friends, and uh, he had attended her 120th birthday party shortly before he died. Um, And they were overheard talking to each other, and she had turned to him at one point, and she said, you know, we all make bad deals. (laughs) That's what 122 can look like. (laughs) Um, But really, the story of we as a society, of how we launched ourselves into this era of very long life, it really doesn't begin with a story about old people. It begins with a story about babies. The dramatic increase in life expectancy that we saw in the 20th century came about because fewer of the youngsters died. In 1900, 25% of babies born died before they reached five. Many more died before they reached 12. Maternal mortality was very high. And in fact, death was so common at all ages, we didn't really associate death with old age. People died at any particular time. You know, you'd catch the flu or uh, develop some sort of a gastrointestinal disease, and you were gone a couple weeks later. So the bulk of this increase in life expectancy, when we talk about these 30 years being added in a century, a little more than half of those years are added by reducing infant mortality, keeping the young ones alive. So what's really changed, if we think about this, as I mentioned, so lifespan hasn't changed. We haven't fundamentally increased the length of time we can live. Um, we reduce the infant mortality. So, so we could think of it as this, that, that what's changed are the odds of making it to old age. That's the change that we are living through historically. And these odds have changed so much that that population pyramid, remember you learned about population pyramids in school? I did. You know, lots of young ones at the bottom, winnowed to a tiny peak at the top, population pyramids that represented the population distribution not only in this country, but in every country around the world, and indeed most species. This population pyramid has been reshaped into a rectangle. <laughs> and if you are the type who can get chills from population statistics, <laughs> my people. (laughs) These are the ones that should do it. Because what this means is that for the first time in human history, the vast majority of babies born in the developed world are having the opportunity to grow old. It can give you chills. It's almost a religious experience. Do you know that, that, that this is the world that we've created that is allowing this gift of life to be bestowed on the majority of little ones born around the world, in the developed world, let me be clear. So how did we do this? Well, in one word, culture. Uh, and by culture, I'm not talking only about the foods that people like and the languages they speak. But I'm talking about culture as the crucible that holds science and technology, uh, wide-scale behavioral practices and social norms that guide us through life. Culture changed. Scientists discovered the causes of many diseases and the ways that they spread. And in partnerships with communities, built health care, public health care programs that vaccinated people against diseases they would never have to suffer. Of course, we didn't stop there. Agricultural technologies for the first time in the 20th century came to provide a sustainable food supply throughout the year. Malnourishment was extremely common in 1900. In fact, I recently read that in 1900, it was difficult for the military to get enough recruits because so many young men were malnourished. They didn't reach the weight that one needed to be to be enlisted. Uh, Today, we have exactly the flip of that problem, by the way, but that's a talk for another day. (laughs) Um, We discovered electricity, and with electricity came refrigeration. And with nearly every American household having refrigeration, imagine how the safety of the food supply in the entire population improved. Historians write that you can thank your garbage collectors as much as your physicians for this increase in life. Because reductions in uh, contagious diseases and the ways that they're spread has so dramatically reduced disease we didn't stop there. Um, As uh, fertility rates fell, we as a society came with some collective judgment to believe that we should invest more in the youngest among us. And so we built in every state in this great nation a public education system where all children, not just the affluent and the privileged few could learn how to read and write. In other words, we changed the way we live. We built, our ancestors built, in the 20th century, a world that is exquisitely designed to support young life. And so here we are standing at a point in human history where four, five, and conceivably six generations can be alive at the same time. Think about that for a minute. You know, we hear a lot about people talking about the good old days when families, multiple generations, lived together on the family farm. No, (laughs) they were dead. (laughs) I mean, yes, it happened occasionally. No, it was not the typical family structure. People didn't live long enough to have two and three and four generations living together. That would have been extremely rare. So this is a first for us. Um, We have reached a time where deaths no longer come from acute diseases, but rather come from chronic diseases that take decades to develop. We have reached a time where retirements defined by age have come to last 30 and more years. We need now to change the way we live again because This increase in the length of the lives that we're living, on average, is a tremendous cultural achievement. I mean, I can hardly imagine any better gift that one could hand a species than more time, more time to to realize our goals, to be with our loved ones, to pursue our dreams. We've got more time. But you don't see a lot of people out there dancing in the street celebrating growing old. Um, instead, individuals are worried, concerned about their own futures and how they will do as they grow old. They're worried about their minds, their bodies, their financial security. Economists are predicting uh, uh, declining uh, productivity as workforces age. Policymakers are concerned about the sustainability of programs like Social Security and Medicare. And the actuaries, oh, The actuaries, they're terrified, (laughs) because they just see these numbers going up and up and up. I maintain that this aging thing feels so hard for us because humans are creatures of culture. We are exquisitely sensitive to culture. We look to culture to tell us uh, when to get an education, when to marry, uh, when to start families, when to work, when to retire. Culture guides us through life. And the culture that guides us today is a culture that evolved around lives half as long. And frankly, the culture that guides us today worked just fine for life expectancies of 50. You know, get an education early, work like a dog, raise a family at the same time. Maybe if you work real hard, your kids will survive. Uh, You get to retire for a couple years, bingo, done. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't work really well for lives that last a 100 years. We have to realize that we're living in a world that was quite literally built by and for the young. You know, people often invoke ageism when they say the world isn't, you know, accepting and accommodating of older people. I don't think it's even ageism. I don't think we have to go there. The world we live in today didn't have old people. So, you know, when you're going up a flight of stairs and your knees are kind of hurting, it's not you, it's the depth of the stairs. It's literally. I mean, airports, when you're running from one, one gate to another and you've got to like have to go a mile. These airports were not built for people over 50. Um, uh, Even hospitals. Have you been in a hospital recently? You have to walk like two miles to get to your, you know, your cardiologist. You know, if you're lucky, you know, you make it there. But these structures, these even physical structures, uh, were built with young people in mind. The tacit users of parks, of highways, of cars, of train stations, of airports, they're young. Indeed, workplaces and working lives have also been modeled around a workforce of very young people, people who have considerable endurance, are quick on the uptake, and are open to you as the boss telling them to do anything that you choose. That's the workforce model. And medical science, medical science has done a spectacular job of finding cures for acute diseases, diseases of the young, so well, in fact, that we nearly doubled the length of the lives that we're living. But medical science has not found adequate solutions for chronic diseases, the diseases that afflict us in old age. That's the problem with the culture we live in today, and that gives you a sense of the feeling of the culture that we need to build for the future. At the Stanford Center on Longevity, we maintain that long life is not the problem, that longer lives are terrific in and of themselves, but the tension is this mismatch between the culture that's guiding us and the length of the lives that we're living. We built the Center on Longevity around three research divisions. One is focused on the mind, which includes decision-making, cognitive neuroscience, social engagement, emotional well-being, a division on mobility, where we address and support research on muscle stem cell development to physical fitness, to the built environment, and changes that we need to make there and a division on financial security where we are pursuing uh, with uh, financial services companies ways to think about decumulation of assets, ways to reduce financial fraud, but also developing, perhaps most importantly, new models of working longer. What we maintain is that these three divisions mind, mobility, and financial security represent three legs of a stool. And if we can create a world where the majority of people arrive at old age, mentally sharp, physically fit, and financially secure, then the problems of individual aging and the problems of societal aging will recede away and we can change this conversation from one about a crisis on the horizon to one about long life and new opportunity, and it rests on our ability to change those three areas, and we are working hard to do that. We believe that by doing that, we can change the very nature of human aging. And I have to say something about Stanford. And that's when we first, we built this center in 2007. And I and many of my colleagues were going around the country talking to people at different universities and in Europe and so on. And we would say, we're going to change the nature of human aging. And I just, a whole lot of people just kind of chuckled, chuckled disparagingly you know, at the idea. You know, Those Stanford people, they think they're going to change it. And at Stanford, we would say, we're going to change the nature of human aging. And, and I got to say, you know, everybody goes, cool, I'm in. <laughs> Now, whether or not we succeed is another thing, but I will tell you that if we don't try, we certainly won't. And so we are trying our best every single day to change the way that people age. Now, I'd be happy as we have a conversation in just a few minutes, when I stop talking, to, um, about any of our, the work in these areas, or in the bigger picture of aging and aging societies, But let me talk just a little bit about these new models of working longer to give you a sense of the kind of thinking uh, that we are doing at the center. So working longer, people are gonna work longer. Now, this is a nice group of people because you didn't groan, Uh, (laughs) but often people do. Um, But we cannot sustain, or I should say finance, 30-year retirements based on 40 years of work. Not the average citizen in this country, not the vast majority of people. And ironically, across the same years that life expectancy was going up so fast in adulthood, from 1950 to 2000, those same years where we're seeing people live longer lives in adulthood, retirement ages were going down So we're seeing people living longer and working fewer years. Um, Now, since 2000, we've seen these trends reverse just a little bit, but we're beginning to see an uptick. And very likely that uptick is because people are realizing they can't possibly finance 30, possibly 40 year retirements. Just a tidbit, the percentage of workers 75 and older um, has increased by 241%. (laughs) <laughs> since, since 1980. Um, so people are coming to work longer and we expect that we will continue uh, to see that. Second, they can work longer. People are in better functional health. We do have a problem with chronic diseases, but if we look at functional health, people are doing quite well in old age, certainly from 65 to 74. Not a big difference in functional health in that age group than the group of people uh, from uh, 55 to 64. So it's it's not a big difference there. People are functionally healthy. In fact, a recent study found that more than 80% of Americans up to age 79 said that they were healthy enough to work some sort of work. Um, we're also finding that work is good for physical health and it's good for cognitive functioning. Uh, so, you know those brain games that you can pay a lot of money to use? Or you could do that or you could just go to work. <laughs> and you would actually have a much better chance of improving your cognitive functioning if you worked. And it doesn't have to be paid work, volunteer work, same thing, we're seeing those same kinds of benefits. Um, third point about work, we work way too hard. So here I'm standing here telling you that we, I think we should work longer, but we should also work a lot better. Uh, We Americans are working harder than any other population around the globe. We don't mandate paid vacations. China does, we don't. Uh, Certainly no other developed nation doesn't provide that. Um, We not only are working hard and not taking vacations, We are working in ways that literally make us sick. Uh, If you work more than 40 hours a week, uh, which many of us do, uh, there's no evidence for increase in productivity beyond that 40-hour work period. Um, And um, it's beginning to take a toll on health in terms of physical fitness, um, alcohol and substance abuse, and certainly on family life. Um, The least happy Workers in the workforce are not old people. They're the happiest workers in the workforce, by the way. But the least happy workers in the workforce are young parent, parents of young children. And that's because every day they're making a choice between being a good parent or a good worker. And they want to be both. We just got 30 extra years of life handed to us, no strings attached. And we're forcing parents (laughs) to outsource the care of their children (laughs) so they can work two jobs. Anyway, you can, yeah, you get the picture. Ron Lee, a demographer at Berkeley maintains that for the vast majority of, of work, four day work weeks would result in no reduction in productivity. So we could move to four day work weeks. Now imagine young parents beginning, both having four day work weeks, a mom and a dad. And imagine flexible work patterns where people can work from home. And we're certainly seeing a movement in that direction, uh, in part for quality of life, but also in part for environmental concerns, letting people reduce the time that they're on the road. So now you imagine a mother and a father, they both work four days a week, and they can work from home two days a week. My gosh, we could begin to raise our own children again. Wouldn't that be something? (laughs) Now, Now, let's say you work part time a little bit like that from 20 to 40. I get in a lot of trouble with the parents of Stanford students as I tell them that there's no rush rush to get in the workforce. (laughs) From 20 to 40, people could work part time. You could test out different jobs, different occupations. In fact, I think we should probably start putting kids to work in high school. I mean, very little bits of work. But if you think you're going to be a physician, go work in a hospital in an ER for, for, for a summer. I don't mean doing surgery. I mean, just hanging out, helping. We could begin to give kids a sense of what they enjoy. Interested in law? Go work in a law firm. Do something just to see what that looks like. Instead of the model now where we have students come to college and in their second year, we say, now what do you want to be for the rest of your life? (laughs) So we we can stretch out life. We can improve quality of life and quality of work by working less, (laughs) but working longer. Workforces are aging. We hear the labor economists say, this is a terrible thing. Productivity will decline. There's no good evidence for that. Uh, In fact, in knowledge-based jobs, we're seeing workforce productivity increase with age. Um, If you work a job that has a social component and a knowledge component, linear up with age and experience. I mean, it's experience is what this is all about. Younger people have many, many, many attractive qualities as workers. What we're getting, what we're beginning to see is not only an aging workforce, but a workforce that is more age-diversified than ever before in history. It's also more ethnically diversified. And we're just beginning to do research on mixed-age workforces, and it looks like they're more productive, than all young or all old workforces. You know, put together the brute strength of the young and the endurance and the speed uh, with the wisdom and the knowledge and the expertise of the old and you actually get something that looks pretty good. I mean, at universities, we've been, <laughs> professors have been having this model for, for forever, right? Of working with young people and helping them with their careers. It's beginning to look like the presence of older workers in the workforces increases the productivity of the young workers. These are the kinds of glimmers that we're beginning to see. So we need to work longer, but we need to work more flexibly. We need to think about policy changes so that employers are not paying so much for health care of older workers. Those policy changes are certainly possible. We could have people eligible for Medicare as a primary payer when they turn 65, whether they're in the workforce or not. That would help employers. We could have a paid up category of social security tax when you hit a certain number of years in the workforce, which would reduce the cost to employers and it would give an incentive to workers. There are lots of things we could do to improve work life and work quality. But we need to think out of the box. (laughs) We need to begin to think creatively about how we use this gift of life. 30 extra years for the average person. I've been asking people over the years, people of all ages, I've been saying, you got 30 extra years, where would you put them? And not a single person has said, I'd make old age longer. (laughs) So let's think a little more creatively. Instead of bracing for the fall, let's build a culture that supports long life. We need financial products that'll help people save differently. Uh, not longer retirements, we need sabbaticals, we need retraining throughout life, we need innovation and social policies um, and norms. We need science and technology to find ways to keep us strong and sharp for a 100 years and more, and we need bold, new, lifelong investments that produce healthy and engaged populations all the way through. And if we apply The same energy and ingenuity that our ancestors did 100 years ago uh, to save the lives of the little ones and reduce premature death. If we invest, then aging societies can, and I believe will, be better societies than we have ever.
0: Thank you. Hi. Um, so I'm, I'm 20 years old and, and healthy aging for me is paramount. I'm just fascinated by, it. I think, generations. I created an intergenerational mentoring program. I think it's just the best when people work together. And my question is, how do young people, how do we begin to change our culture that puts so much focus on getting all the work out of the way now in our lives? What are the daily steps mm. that my peers and I can take when we're all in such a rush right now? Yeah.
1: You know, a a colleague of mine, uh, Jack Rowe, has been thinking about these issues uh, also for for many years. And he says about people like me and about him, you know, we all know we're at slide one here. And we all know slide 10 is going to look real different. And it's kind of going to look the way I just described. He says that we know that's going to happen. It's got to happen eventually. The question is, what's slide two say? And I think that really is, for us, the biggest challenge right now. How do we make that happen right now? How can we make it possible for you to say, I'm going to work part-time for the next 10 years, and not to have to worry that you'll never work again (laughs) because you're going to be out of sync? Um, So we need to develop programs that allow us to do that. We also need to begin to talk about it uh, and to think about what these work-life patterns may be. From everything we're learning, it looks like work is good for people. So I'm not advocating we stop working and just go travel and you know, hang out and eat Cheetos in the basement kind of of your parents' house. That's not, not necessarily it. But we should think of new ways to work and learn and go back and forth in and out of the workforce and to work more flexibly. I think what's gonna happen best for your generation is that we are going to begin to see employers who need to retain older workers because they need them for their expertise, and they're gonna have to offer them something that you would like, which is flexibility. (laughs) And because of age discrimination, they can't just offer it to the old workers. (laughs) They're gonna have to offer it to young workers too. So I think one benefit of living at this historical time is that the baby boomers headed into retirement um, are going to demand different kinds of working models in order to stay in a workforce. Employers are gonna need them to stay, and so we're gonna to begin to see some of these models offered, and I think it will help young people do that as well. So we can begin to see this mix, because your generation is what longevity is all about, much more than mine. You can really change the whole length of your adult life.
2: Um, a few months ago, I had the opportunity at, of attending a conference of tech companies, similar to those in Silicon Valley, although these were from another country. Mm-hmm. And there were four or five representatives, all who were very young, mm-hmm. and all talked about their uh, success and their financial success. success. Mm-hmm. And then when it came up t- to asking them, well, what are the ages of the, peoples and the c- people in the company? Everyone was under 35. So during the Q&A, I asked the question, why is there such an aversion yeah. to having older people yeah. work in your companies? We bring experience and know-how and having had the opportunity to make decisions before, some of which you have never really dealt with, why is there such an aversion? And there really is, these tech people feel, that when you're, when you're over 55, you're over the hill. Any comments?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I know them. <laughs> um, it is true, and Silicon Valley is very much a, a youth-centered um, uh, region of the world. I can tell you that at least in Silicon Valley, the cool thing that happens there is, you know, everybody grows old. (laughs) So some of these young people are now middle-aged and getting older and beginning to move in that direction and realizing that there is real benefit to mixed-age workforces. Um, And so I think we're beginning to see some change there. The The other concern that we have had at Stanford about the technology developments is they've tended not to be for older adults. Um, and in fact, when you talk about aging technology, it translates for most people into healthcare technology. As if the only thing that people care about over 60 is their health and nothing else. Not movies, not entertainment, not food, not travel, you know, all those other things drop away. So what we have been doing at Stanford is to have something called a design challenge every year. and we. Uh, challenge students at universities around the world to uh, develop technologies to address particular kinds of challenges that aging people are facing. And we've seen some pretty spectacular kinds of uh, um, uh, ideas coming through that design challenge. And I think when young people begin to think about challenges that older people are facing, they're much more interested in talking to one or two. (laughs) <laughs> to see, you know, sort of what what is this like? So I think we're beginning to see some changes in that. Uh, but I agree with you that there's been and still is a very strong uh, uh, youth culture in technology, the technology world.
3: While you're doing some very interesting things, Mike. Our my question: We're an older couple. Mm-hmm. What do we need you for? What do you what do you what do you got to offer? We are. We have tens of millions of people mm-hmm. who have plenty of money, plenty yeah. of smarts, plenty of time. Yeah. We can fix everything ourselves if we just feel like it. Mm-hmm. What we really need is old people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If you want to do something for us, however, you're, you're already doing, yeah. because the main problem we got old people have is loneliness. We got, For that, we need a self-driving car, which Google's already working on, we, so we can get out of the house. And we will need mm-hmm. computers which have voice actuated, so we can talk to each other without having to try to type these little keys on the telephone. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get those. Mm-hmm. And by then, we'll, we'll control politics, and we can have whatever we want.
1: <laughs> yeah, there are a lot, of, a lot of issues in there. <laughs> Okay, so, we haven't solved all the problems. Um, Let me tell you what one of the biggest problem is right now, I think for societies and aging societies, is that about the majority of older people are retired and about 23% of older people are volunteering. So we're not getting out of older populations what we need as a society. We need all hands on deck. Uh, we can't afford to have a quarter of a population sit it out. We need you. <laughs> we need older adults to participate. And we're, we're not seeing that level of participation now. And I'm not blaming anybody. That's the model of life. The model of life is 65. You can you know, check out, basically, think about what you'd like to do. We can't afford that anymore. We can't afford that for that long. Uh, so that's one thing. Older people. Social isolation is not their biggest problem. Um, Actually, most older people are not lonely. Being lonely and old is a problem. I don't disagree with you, but there are more lonely college students than there are lonely older people. Um, You know that adage, it's easier to feel, you feel more isolated in a crowd, more lonely in a crowd than you do when you're by yourself. So yes, older people spend a lot more time alone than younger people, but they're not more lonely. In fact, they're happier. Than younger people are, more satisfied with life. the The problem right now with retirement is people like it, you know. It's, so, so it's like okay, and people think it's okay. We we need an engaged population. That's the biggest problem. Now, there are some other problems. You need us. At Stanford, for like, let's find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. We'd like that. We'd like to find ways to reduce uh, uh, cart, uh, congestive heart failure, uh, improve fitness. We we need to make many, many, many scientific discoveries and progress. We need to understand. Uh, nutrition and the role of nutrition, which means we need to understand gut bacteria and what that's doing for us. I mean, there are scores of questions that we need scientific and technological answers for in order to improve the quality of life of older adults and younger adults. But the biggest, the biggest argument I would have with you is that we need more older people engaged in solving the problems you're talking about. We need people's engagement. That's true for all ages and all societies, that they need the engagement of educated and expert parts of their populations.
0: Thank you so much. This has been such a great talk. Um, I'm curious, uh, I think it's the, the second um, point of the center, um, how you see the built environment changing? Um, I mean, do you see a new mm-hmm. housing paradigm coming about, multi-generational? Mm-hmm. Just if you could you know, give sure. us your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yes.
1: Yes, the environment in which we're living is, as I alluded to, a problem uh, in a couple ways. You know, if you say to older people, put the question to them, where do you want to grow old? Where do you want to live your last year's Uh, vast majority, over 85%, say right where I am in my own home. Uh, So assisted living or retirement communities and so on is not appealing to the majority. The majority of people say they want to live where they are. The problem is it's hard for a lot of people to stay where they are Uh, because it gets to be dangerous. So we have an awful lot of suburbs today (laughs) are filled with elderly people and houses that are too large for them, making it difficult for upkeep, also bad for the environment, and areas of the world where if you don't have a car, you can't drive, you really do get isolated. And so it's hard to get out and about. So those are the kinds of things we're working with. Uh, working on the kinds of challenges is how can you convert the suburbs into multi-generational housing? How can we improve transportation? So we're working with car companies to automation, the technologies and automating cars and so on so that we can change. Both the ability to renovate homes, Uh, To think about multi-generational housing and to allow better transportation uh, when people do have difficulty getting around, or or in my opinion, or don't have difficulty getting around, uh, we need to begin to use automated technologies in cars so that we can improve uh, the environment and climate and so on. But those are the kinds of things that we're working on doing.
3: Thank you so much. Uh, Until Stanford cures Alzheimer's disease, uh, what are the strategies to relieve the current burden of this devastating condition, the societal burden, especially the burden on the children who are often pressed to take care of both their young children as well as their aging parents who aren't able to take care of themselves, cognitively or physically?
1: Yeah, These are major, major problems. Uh, Alzheimer's disease. it isn't a disease only of individuals, it's a disease, as you say, of families. And uh, it is one of the most pernicious and, and, and devastating for people because uh, people often stay in relatively good physical health while they lose their uh, cognitive abilities. We are working with companies and challenging and some of our design challenges to trying to develop technologies that will help people uh, with memory, using technology devices that tell you who the person is you're talking to based on a uh, a facial recognition technology, that kind of thing that we're doing. I I don't think at this point, I guess I'm I'm, I'm assuming I'm feeling the same way you are, that this is a real problem and we don't have, we haven't figured out the solution. Uh, We have made a lot of progress in early detection of Alzheimer's disease Uh, And I can tell you that the excitement in the scientific community about cures is palpable. I mean, things do feel like they're changing and there are clinical trials underway on a small scale in universities around the country that at least are having promise in animal models. And so the the early detection is probably only gonna help us get treatment to people earlier uh, in the course of the disease um, but it's 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 among the biggest challenges we have right now of aging societies. I wish I had a, 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 a more upbeat uh, answer. Yes. You've you've talked a lot about how the last 30 years or the 30 years can be opportunities or a gift. Um, my grandmother is 98 and has been
2: alive for the last 10 years, but has been gone. She's mm-hmm. been living in a hospital. It's just it hasn't been a
1: gift for her. So what do we do when this extra 30 years? are not a gift or not opportunities, but are spent Mm -hmm. in a hospital bed or spent spending time and money, Mm -hmm. what should we do? Uh, We just launched a program of research at the Center on Longevity on Decision-Making Surrounding Life-Threatening Disease. Uh, So I'll, I'll, in a nutshell, give you my analysis of our problems now with medicine and and that result too often in people living the lives that your grandmother's living. And that is that our our medicine evolved around the threat of acute diseases. Most people died prematurely as the medical system was evolving, right? And so the culture of medicine is to say, no matter what, I will save a life. And as it turns out today, we can save a life a lot longer than that life is high quality. I think we've reached a point in human history where most people are living out their full lives, where we're gonna have to also come to terms with what a good death looks like. And when we stop providing aggressive medical treatment for people where there's very little chance of a high quality life, being restored with that treatment. And I am not talking about euthanasia, and I am not talking about death panels. I am talking about being able to understand and to give people the information they need to make decisions about what they want at the end of their lives and in those last years so that their values are respected and that we can uh, use medical treatments for those people who want aggressive treatment and find ways through palliative care to give people higher quality of life for those people who don't want those treatments. So I think those, the, these kinds of situations and they're all too common uh, where people are living in a hospital bed for years uh, alive, but not really alive. Um, we need to end that. And we can do it by making better decisions, both as individuals and as families, as we come to the end of our lives. Thank you. Thank you all.
0: That was Laura Carstensen, reported live at the Aspen Ideas Festival Spotlight Health on June 28, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tricia Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.